Good to see you all here this morning. Just because we sing really, really good here at Parkside doesn't mean that uh, God is somehow greater. God is already on his throne, okay? And if you're not singing or participating in it, uh, so be it. But you know what? Our God is on his throne and he reigns. And he reigns forever and ever, okay? So I appreciate um, uh, our students being up here. A good-looking bunch, yeah. All right. Well, um, I'm excited about our time this morning. And um, we're, if you're here visiting, we are going through the book of Exodus. And today, uh, somebody noted in the outline, um, they said that, that's not 8 verse 10. That's 8 through 10. And I said, yeah. You got a problem with that? <laughs> so we'll see what we can do today in uh, getting through this passage here. Okay, everyone. Life is like a bottle, oh, yeah, chocolate, and, or a bowl of cherries, or a cheribolis. Right? Okay. Life is uh, described as a lot of things, isn't it? Um, life is a, a beach. Life is a party. Life is a book. Life is a journey. Life is an adventure. Okay, we're getting a little more uh, challenging to ourselves here. Life is a struggle. Life is a problem. Life is what? You know, and so much of it depends on your perspective. Some people even say life is just <sighs> sigh. That's all they can say. Life is a bad joke. Some people really believe that. Life is a bad joke. Life is a vapor. But I would offer up this description as there are many descriptions of life, I would offer this one up for our time today. And I, let me preface it by saying I do not watch this show. I don't think I've ever watched this show. I don't think I know. I've never watched the show. But life is a game of thrones. Okay? Life is a game of thrones. Now, as we go through this, you'll see what that's all about. The idea is following what we used to play as children. King of the Hill. Right? Uh, maybe out here in Nevada, you didn't have many hills to... Of course, you got Rattlesnake here. You, I guess you could do that. Um, or even, if you'd like, uh, musical chairs. Musical chairs, you know, one chair being removed by another, and the last one sitting, not standing, the last one sitting is the winner. Well, 
all of it's kind of subtle stuff, but um, this is the idea. Game of Thrones is very effective as we all aim to sit on a throne. All of us. We figure that's the safest bet. That's the best bet. I don't really trust anyone else to sit on the throne. So we all go through these power plays of life to prove ourselves, to show ourselves worthy, to show ourselves successful, etc., confident, all those things. Yet it is the throne that God alone is to be on. He is on the throne, whether we like it or not, as I mentioned earlier. He is on the throne. The question is, where are you and I at in this? So this morning's message is about the undoing of a kingdom. The undoing of a kingdom. It's time for Pharaoh and Egypt to face the truth. God's in control. God's in charge. Pharaoh, with his rule and his reign, and the way they've gone after and and dealt with the people of Israel, they've gone too far. God now takes action. And we're really, like, we're behind that. We're saying, yeah, amen. Amen. Go get them, God. All right? And so... um, We do have point number one in your outline, the divine offensive. The divine offensive. Last week we touched on the first plague, the Nile River turning into blood, and what that did to their very, the core and the heart of their very system. Okay? And so on we go here with these uh, following plagues. Obviously we're not going to touch on everyone in depth, uh, but we want to consider them. Um, letter A under number one, the frogs. A swarm of frogs in the Nile. That's what verse 3 tells us in chapter 8. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up. Not just stay in the Nile, but they'll come up. into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, and into the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens and your kneading bowls, absolutely everywhere. Okay? Frogs everywhere. And this is um, a constant annoyance. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the noise? Now, their beds, typically Egyptian beds, were on the floor not up raised like we have in our Western society. So uh, you go to bed at night and ribbit, here it comes, you know, another one, another one, another one, and you just, you know, you can't, can you even sleep really? We don't know, but they're all, all over the place. Simply oppressive and demeaning to boot. <laughs> As frogs represented idols, of the, the, uh, was, were represented by idols of uh, fertility, uh, symbols of abundance and prosperity. Uh, even the god known as Heket, uh, the goddess of fertility, was overseeing childbirth is what they believed. And they were considered sacred, not to be killed at all. How do you like that? You mean we can't even kill these things? If, if you're a good Egyptian, you're not supposed to kill them. I wouldn't last very long. Right? But let's look at chapter 8, verse 10. 
So Moses, um, in verse 9, starting in verse 9, Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when to plead uh, for you. This has already happened now. Your servants and your people, uh, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, uh, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There's the reason behind it. And notice again, here's the, the whole thing being oppressive and uh, squishy. Uh, what other you know, ideas can you come up with in your mind about frogs? Right? And Pharaoh bent a little bit and said, okay, can, uh, let's, let's get rid of these. Can we do this? I don't know why he didn't say right now. He said tomorrow. Maybe he was still holding out hope that somehow their gods could handle it and respond and get rid of them. But no, that, that wasn't going to happen. This is to show that God has no equal. He alone is the one true God with power to raise up and, and power to put down as he chooses. So a swarm of frogs. Then, letter B, gnats. Chapter 8, verse 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Okay? Aaron was to do that. He did it. And this was a strike. That's, by the way, that's what the idea of a plague is. It's a strike against this people, Egypt. Okay? And so Aaron strikes the soil, which is an offense to the God who is the protector of the soil in Egypt. Every little plague is a strike against one of their gods. So this plague exposed this particular god's powerlessness. And the gnats rose up from the soil. People and animals were infested with these gnats. Some commentators say there was lice. And, you know, I mean, at one of the schools here in town, if they, if they get one student with lice, it's like, up, oh, uh, shut down. We don't want lice doing what? Spreading and passing along from student to student to student. <laughs> lice. Well, you know what else this affected was the priests. The priests in Egypt <clears throat> had to wash themselves daily. Without the gnats and the lice. They, and, and now they've got lice or gnats all over the place. Uh, you know, you can get one little one in, caught in your eye and, and freak out. Or up your nose. Or in your ear. And we love it in our mouth, don't we? Uh, it's like this is, again, a widespread thing. All right? Very small insect, yet exceedingly annoying. Maybe even it causes itching and, and, or rashes. We don't know exactly. But the gnats were there. Letter C. We get a little bit more intense. Flies. Chapter 8, starting in verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. He's done it again. He said it again to Moses. 
you better let my people go so that they can go and serve me and worship me. If you don't, the houses of Egyptians will or shall be filled with swarms of flies and also on the ground on which they stand. Okay? So, flies. Now, again, it, it's not giving details, scientifically speaking, of what they were. These are different than the gnats. In the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament Greek translation... The Septuagint gives the translation as like a, a dog fly. This is like, you know, this is uh, not just your normal little house fly. This is a, a fly that can zoom in and bite. Um, as a boy growing up in Minnesota, um, out at the lake, we would always be on the lookout for what we called horse flies because they were like that. They would just come in and bite you, right? And... Uh, you know, on the back. They, they knew where to go. <laughs> and this is a swarm of these things. Okay? Except for the, this passage says, here's the first one where there's a distinction. The land of Goshen, who's in the land of Goshen? The Israelites. They didn't have this problem. They didn't have that plague. Okay? Very annoying and now, painful on top of it with the, the potential of it. Other commentators mention it might have been a beetle because a beetle was another symbol of Egypt's worship. Again, God knows exactly what he wanted to do to undermine or to show as powerless these false gods. Letter D, livestock. Livestock died. Okay? Chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. Okay. The hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon, in verse 3, upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. So sheep and goats, you know, herds and flocks, they're going to die. And here's the same distinction given. Israel's livestock are protected. They're kept from the plague. And not one of the livestock from the possession of the Israelites died. And even in verse 7 of chapter 9, what does this show here? Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. Now, we're seeing, we're not touching on it today. We'll do it next Sunday. But here's again is this issue of here's um, back and forth. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart. Okay? And just a general statement. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Th that is throughout this whole passage. We want to look at that in depth next week. So, the livestock died. And we move on. Letter E, boils. Another real favorite one. The people experience boils. Verse, um, verse 8 in chapter 9. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln. 
Okay, now they didn't just go with their hands full. They had to have, most likely had a, a container or a bag of some sort, reached in and threw it out. Moses, uh, throw, uh, let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it in the air, and it becomes boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses. Why? They experienced boils. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't react to it and kind of do their magic uh, against it. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Okay. Breaking out into sores. And what message did it send to Pharaoh? His own magicians couldn't, they didn't know what to do. They couldn't do anything. They were at a loss. Sickly boils. Extreme. You know, painful, etc. Letter F, the next plague, hail and lightning. And this plague is described in more detail now, more detail than the others. And it's only time we read that the Lord explains to Pharaoh the purpose of the plagues. Look at chapter 9, verse 14 through 17. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So there's that explanation, obviously given by Moses. Now, I want to take a little side road and show you, uh, mention this in verses 19 through 22. It's like, why? wait a minute here. Verse 19, look at it. It's, it's like we have pause and go, whoa, wait a minute. I thought all the livestock were already dead. Verse 19, now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safer, into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home uh, will die when the hail falls on them. Okay? Um, what we understand, you know, it's, it's speculation, Right? We're trying to understand the, the full issue of the, here's the plagues, and here's now this statement. Understand that here's the potential of livestock that had been kept in shelters, you know, covers, barns, whatever. We don't really know, but um, the hail continues, this plague of the hail and lightning, that's what the idea of fire, if that's what your version says, the idea of hail and lightning striking and killing. Um, now it gets more, uh, there's a greater increase of difficulty, a greater increase of pain and problems with the hail and the lightning. Um, we, don't, we aren't told the size of the hail. 
Um, obviously, we, in our day and age, we hear of um, snowball, softball size uh, hail that falls in certain places, and it's, you can't be outside. It's dangerous. But this causes more destruction. And then letter G, if anything's left, this next plague takes care of it, the locusts. Okay, chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Verse 3, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. They shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. The Egyptians were used to locusts. It's not like this is something new. They were used to it. And yet this one was, again, uh, very irritating, very uh, problematic. It left a devastation regarding the remaining vegetation uh, in their land. And again, the gods were silent. Egypt's gods were silent. Egypt was left with famine, famine-like conditions, as well as, can you imagine what the buzz was uh, around the people? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Going to Pharaoh, complaining, you know, sending representatives to Pharaoh. Hey, come on. And so it grew more and more. And then finally, letter H in chapter 10, verses 12, uh, 21 through 29, a darkness fell upon them. A darkness that was felt. That's what the passage is telling us. It was a darkness that was felt. And again, uh, commentators will mention how, oh, this must have been one of those big sandstorms. Um, we don't know. We don't have that understanding exactly. But it was a darkness that was felt. They couldn't see one another. It was pitch dark for three days, okay? So today, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Think about it. Darkness. Complete darkness. Uh, we didn't have the flashlights back then. Complete darkness. Even there, maybe the flashlights wouldn't have gone very far because of how it was such a thick, complete darkness. And again, you know, we look at these plagues, and we, you know, in our day and age, we kind of go, you know, is, is this mythology? I, I remember Greek mythology in, in ninth grade. Is this like mythology? No. Here's God's Word telling us of God's action, God's steps that He took. So, 
And this particular one of the darkness, um, this was also differentiated with the people in the land of Goshen. Guess what? They didn't have that problem. In, in where the Israelites lived, they had light. They could see. Which, which leads us to a great picture, folks. Most of you get it. Most of you understand. If you're a believer, you've been taken from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. That ought to excite us. That ought to um, cause us to thank God over and over again. Okay? All too often we get sunk into, you know, uh, life is just the pits. Is it? Is that what you want to display in your life? You know, I've been saved. I've been redeemed. I've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And, and we need to let that linger in our minds and think of the depths of that. What is involved in that? And it's not because you're a good person or you're an American or you're a churchgoer. No. It's because of the work of Jesus Christ. His perfect, completed work. If you do not know him, you're in the land of darkness, spiritually speaking. You need to admit your sin, repent of it, and have faith in Jesus Christ, who is, he said, I am the light of the world. Okay? John chapter 8, verse 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Right? Another reference, if you want to mark it down, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, you Christian, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, what? Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, that's the divine offensive. God saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show the Egyptians just how foolish this is, these false gods. Point number two, he's got an objective behind it. The divine objective behind the offensive is clear. We've already read some of the verses. Okay? It's a fourfold... I, I, I pulled out four. There might be more. But here's a fourfold objective, divine objective, the message behind the plagues. Letter A, to keep his covenant, to keep God's covenant. It's to keep his promise to his people. God is faithful. God is true. He took action, and he came through with his word. Here it starts with the plagues. And what's going to eventually happen? God's people will be rescued Okay, that's what is behind his covenant, to rescue his people. We like that story in, in the westerns, the West, uh, movies that, you know, cowboy movies, we love that. Roy Rogers, you know, riding trigger and rescuing the damsel in distress, right? And we've got all sorts of stories in life about that kind of thing in movies, in books, etc., etc., And the great story is God came to the rescue. Okay? 
and to secondly, liberate under letter A, to rescue and to liberate the slaves. And then thirdly, to deliver them from bondage and bring them to the promised land. That's God's word. And that's what he's done in foreshadowing the perfect work of Christ at the cross. Okay, that's, that's one of the objectives. Letter B, a second objective of God in bringing on these plagues is to expose falsehood. To expose falsehood. I want you to keep a marker there in Exodus. Uh, turn over to Psalm 83. Now, this is just one, but there are many examples of this. Psalm 83. Psalm 83. We'll look at um, a number of passages and uh, verses here in this, in this chapter. Psalm 83. Oh God, in verse 1, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. Who's that? That's Israel, God's chosen nation. And they say in verse 4, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Well, that's happening. That can, that's happened back in the past, and it continues to happen. People want to wipe out the nation of Israel. Oh, by the way, why haven't they been wiped out? Interesting. Now look at verse 13. Verse 13, oh my God, make them your enemies. Make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempests and terrify them with your hurricane. There, there's somewhat of a parallel to what's happened in, in Egypt with these plagues. Okay? Let them be put to shame. Let them be dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, that's Yahweh, that you are the most high over all the earth. Same objective there. Let God's name and let God's fame be known everywhere. Not just in Egypt. Turn over to uh, the New Testament for another example, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy. I didn't put this in your notes, but um, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and then 1 first, uh, first Timothy and 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 2. For people will be lovers of, uh, of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at 
and knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Here's, folks, here's a, a warning about false teachers. And God, in his sovereign way, brings forth Janus and Jambres. You know who these guys are? You follow it and track it. it it's a reference back to Exodus 7, the magicians, the magicians of Egypt opposing Moses. And it's, tra it's taken and put to the issue of, now, in churches, watch out for false teaching. God continues to give um, warning after warning. First um, Timothy chapter 4, First uh, John chapter 4, Jude chapter 4. All those deal with, watch out for false teaching. Be on the alert. Well, God demonstrates it with the plagues. The plagues, the, the, the false gods can't do anything about it. Okay? All right. So, God keeps his covenant. Letter B, he exposes falsehood. Letter C, it's to display his sovereignty and supremacy. Right? Now, I heard in Sunday school this morning a great couple of questions. Some of you that were there, uh, you remember, if God was not in ultimate control over everything, then who would be ruling in the end? If God was not in ultimate control over everything, then who would be ruling in the end? And the follow-up question is, are you glad that God rules and overrules the evil acts of his creatures? And to that, we say it again, amen. We are. But some of us don't um, give God the credit for being sovereign. Somehow we, we take away from his glory and say, well, Here's how this happened, or here's how that happened. And we need to remember, let's give God the glory for being sovereign, in control. That doesn't mean um, there's stuff that goes on that he's not aware. It's like, what kind of God is that? If he's not aware of things, it's like, he's not God if he doesn't know what's going on. And this, this stretches us, doesn't it? <laughs> I can't put my mind around that. Well, join the club. If, you know, if that's the way it is for you, join the club. He is sovereign. And it's not that we are supposed to wait and feel that that's the case. Oh, I feel like, yeah, God, God's sovereign, and I feel so warm and fuzzy about No, it's a fact that's declared in the Bible as true. You and I need to move in that direction towards that fact, towards that truth. Okay? So, God's sovereignty. 
um, there's a reference under letter C, under number two, um, Exodus. I want you to add in, ex it's Exodus 9, 13 through 16. Exodus 9, 13 through 16. Um, Proverbs 16, verse 4 says this, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. That's saying he's a sovereign God. He's sovereign over even the wicked, and he made them. <laughs> Psalm 147, verse 5 and 6. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble, and he casts the wicked to the ground. Okay? Also, God proves his sovereignty in his word in creation. He speaks a word, and things come about. Creation didn't happen with the Big Bang. Sorry. Creation happened at the word of God. He spoke and it came about. And God proves his sovereignty in the consummation of things. Not just the creation, but in the consummation of everything. The end times. But most importantly, he shows his sovereignty at the cross of Calvary. He takes what Satan figured was a defeat. He takes what the Jews thought was a well-laid-out plan. We got rid of this guy. He takes what the Romans boast in, their power and strength, and God takes it and turns it around for his glory. It was his predetermined plan to bring this about. It wasn't like he was changing it on the fly. Oh, i got to figure this out. The, the Romans did this. The Jews did that. No. He had a, a predetermined plan. <laughs> and God upended it all. Turn it around for his glory and for your salvation. And you know what? <laughs> Man continues to try to bump him out of the picture. Man continued. He, he did it back there at Calvary. They might not have known it, but man was just pushing God out of the picture. And that's what continues to happen in our day and age. Mankind will continue to push God out of the picture. We don't want to be held accountable. We don't want these rules and this whatever. And yet God, God's demonstrated his sovereignty and his supremacy overall. And all the while, letter D... He offers up his mercy. Let that sink in. You and I were part of the rebel, the rebel cause against Jesus. We were enemies of God, enemies of the cross. And all the while, just like, just like with Pharaoh, God was offering his mercy to Pharaoh, wasn't he? Hey, Here's another plague coming, uh, Pharaoh, if you'll let my people go. All right? Here's God's mercy continuing to be offered up. With each plague, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were being called to repent, called to turn with each warning from Moses and Aaron they were being offered God's mercy. 
That's the sign of a, of a righteous and compassionate God. So the divine, listen, the divine offensive leads us to discover the divine objective, allowing us, point number three, to get, to understand the divine, I might be stretching it here, the divine occupancy. What's the divine occupancy? It gets back to what we started at the beginning, the throne of God. Who's on the throne? Who's occupying the throne? I tell you, if I was one of the Israelites, I might have, you know, had I been a devoted Jew worshiping God, I might have been questioning God just like many. When's God going to show up? When's God going to come? God is on his throne. No matter what you and I think or feel, God is on his throne. He always was. He always will be. Our memory verse says what? Are you going to call that to mind? He has set his throne up for justice. And again, we are a people. We when it comes right down to it, I want justice. I want justice for that situation. For that situation. I want justice for what's going on over there and what's going on in Chicago. I want justice. I want to see what, you know, this ought to change. We want justice, don't we? It's hard to um, deal with it when we realize that the message of the Bible is directed at my heart because there's a throne in my heart that God needs to occupy. There's a throne in your heart that God needs to occupy. Now, we've spiritualized it here, but we need to always remember God is on the throne no matter what you're thinking or feeling. God's on his throne. That's what's declared in the Bible and notice in letter A, under number three, he holds it forever. He holds it forever. And we're now looking at Psalm 9, you know, our memory verse. And that every emperor, every, you know, you study history, every emperor, every king, every Caesar, they have a beginning they have a starting point. They have an ending point. God has no beginning to his reign. He has no end to his reign. God holds his throne forever. He sits in his throne forever, forever and ever. If, if you and I can remember that when things aren't going our way or when things are falling apart or what, whatever the situation is, we need to, this is one truth to draw our minds to he sits on his throne forever. He hasn't moved off of it. Nothing's shaken him off of his throne. Letter B, he holds the standard of judgment. He holds the standard. It's judging. How did he judge Pharaoh in Egypt? We think, oh, that was a little overboard, God. You know, that wasn't a little much. You know, especially next week, um, not next week, in two weeks, we'll be looking at the, the final plague Okay. 
that plague of the death of the firstborn. And we, we would look at that as, you know, civilized people here in, in, the Western, in our Western culture and say, this is a little much. But we understand that God is judging righteously the same way he will judge everyone in righteousness. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Psalm 9, 7 and 8. And you know why? He is the standard. It's not that he's got the book or the code or the whatever. God is the standard because God is righteous. He is the righteous one. Psalm 11, verse 7. He is the righteous judge. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Verse 7, uh, chapter 7 in the book of Psalms. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Do we think of that? That that describes our God? And then when it comes to his judgment, Psalm 19, verse 9 says, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So God is the standard for righteousness. And then let us see, in the future, he will be justified. He will be justified in every instance, in all cases, God will, found, will be found to be true and righteous in his judgments. He won't be questioned. He won't be criticized. He's not going to be second-guessed because he's righteous and he's true. Isn't that amazing? That is, that is awesome. That is great. Because we know here in our world, even the nicest judge is still not quite right. Maybe in one way or another. Not quite right. He falls short, just like any person would. No one will be saying about God's judgment, ah, uh, but wait a minute, God, you forgot about this point. It's not quite true. No one will be saying that before a holy, righteous, pure God. No one. Mark it down, if you're taking notes, Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, for most of you in this room, you stand in the refuge of Christ. You stand in the refuge of Christ because why? Christ took the wrath of God upon himself at the cross. Hallelujah! He took God's wrath there. He took the punishment that you deserve. And so now you stand in the refuge of Jesus. Amen. And there, listen, there are some of you here that stand on your own. You have no refuge other than your own arguments, your own reasoning. You need to wake up and realize you cannot meet the standard of perfection that Jesus did. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, and he took the wrath of God in your place. And until you repent of your sins, acknowledge your sin, and have faith in Christ, you will still remain outside and vulnerable to the wrath of God that will be coming. It might not happen today, but it will be coming. Mark down Luke chapter 16, verses 24 through 31. We don't have time to look at it, but Luke chapter 16. Here is the, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. 
you know what the, uh, happens? They both die. And Lazarus, the humble one, goes to the bosom of Abraham in peace with God. The rich man goes to Hades. He is separated from God. He sees from afar Abraham, and he cries out, please go and tell my brothers, my five brothers, go tell them. You know, he, he had no legitimate gripe in that story. There was no gripe that he was saying, hey, God, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve this. Now, all he was saying was, please warn my five brothers that they need to, you know, not come here. We, we don't want them to come here. That's what he was pleading for, crying out for. And what did Abraham say? They have the law and the prophets. They have the law and the prophets. That's the, that's the warning that those five brothers have been given. Folks, the declaration of God in his revelation is his warning and his offer of mercy, his offer to say, come. Jesus saying it, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We've got to wrap it up here. What does God think about false gods? Do we need to explain that? What does God think about false gods? And I've mentioned it already in a way. Uh, the Western culture that you and I have grown up in, we look at the many false gods of Egypt and we think, how foolish. This is ridiculous. They're false gods. You know, they made up a god for every little thing, everything. Oh, let's make up another god. And we think, oh, how foolish. Yet, we too are a people who have our own flirtation. Listen, we have our own flirtation, our own embracing, our own affairs with false gods. We can make it up out of spiritual and religious things. Ours may be a little bit more sophisticated and, and more difficult to detect than the Egyptians. That's silly what they did. But ours, we can hide ours a lot easier, a lot better. We, want, we, we tend to cover them up. We don't want people to know that I have a little false god in my, in my backyard or whatever, in my living room, in my, in my bedroom, all that. We've got false gods we've got to deal with. And God says to you, Christian, little children, guard yourselves from idols. 1 John 5, 21. Acknowledging that the idols are there. False gods are there. We would say, no, no, no. We don't do that here. We're a Christian church. But Christian, he's talking to uh, John, the apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is talking to Christians. Guard yourselves from them. Thus, I need to identify what they are. Can we identify what these things are that pop up as false gods? 
The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the worlds with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. God is a jealous God. If you're his child, he is jealous for you. Guard yourselves against idols. Identify them. Surrender to God. Reject the idea and the notion of a mutiny against God. Reject that. Reject the coup. <laughs> Reject the takeovers. You've got your flesh that you deal with every day. And every day the flesh wants to sit in the throne and be in charge and call the shots. We need to bow down to the one who sits enthroned forever. Not just bow down to him, but love and adore and worship him. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Heavenly Father, we proclaim, uh, we say it again, we agree with each other that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the sovereign King. You are supreme over all things. You are God. You are the most high God. And we bow before you and pray that you would help us to grow in our faith, to love you and serve you, and to recognize the many false gods that want to pop up in our lives and to recognize the, 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 the influence of our old nature and how that wants to take over. And Lord, together we want to uh, encourage one another about Christ being on the throne of our hearts and lives. Be glorified, we pray. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. May you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Uh, a meet and greet time will be in the Fellowship Hall for those that would like to join us. Meet and greet with the elders.